0: Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. This morning we are looking at Romans chapter 2, verses 6 to 11 of God's holy word. Last Lord's Day, Paul had began to uh, not only speak of the Gentiles... And their judgment before God. But now he is addressing his Jewish audience, beginning in chapter 2. He really set this up, as we have been talking about, very similar to how many of the prophets did in the Old Testament. Amos, for example. As Amos begins his prophecy, a prophecy of judgment, he begins to speak of the surrounding nations around Israel and Judah. He's talking about Moab, Edom, Gaza... And then all of a sudden he shifts and says, for three transgressions and for four, I will not let Judah escape or Israel escape. So it's like he set it up in such a way that even those that are in Judah and Israel would see this judgment of of Amos as far as what he is speaking of God's judgment. And they would say, amen, yes, Uh, bring, bring judgment upon the surrounding nations, upon those Gentiles until Amos then points it at them because of their disobedience, because of their breaking the covenant. Paul uses a very similar uh, structure here in Romans as he begins in Romans 1.18, speaking of the Gentile world. And no doubt his hearers, especially his Jewish hearers, would have said, Amen, yes, bring the judgment upon the Gentiles. Until he gets to chapter 2, and then he turns his attention back to his Jewish audience, and he says... Therefore, in light of everything that I just said about the Gentiles, you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself for you who judge practice the same things. And so he aimed it then at his Jewish audience to say, you who think that you're in a much better place because you have the law... You think yourself to be the covenant people of God, and that's all that is necessary. That's all that's needed. These are those that we have referred to as the moralists, those who are well to point out other people's faults and and sins, but they don't ever look at their, their own life or to see how they're breaking the law of God. Maybe not in the same manner, but nonetheless, they're still breaking the law of God. And so keeping this in mind is very, very important as we head into this next portion of God's word because there are things that are spoken of here in verses 6 to 11 that would in one sense be difficult for us Uh, make us scratch our head a little bit and and ask a few questions is this what Paul's really teaching Uh, it just doesn't seem to fit in what we know Paul to say elsewhere and you'll understand what I'm saying once we look at this passage but we must keep in mind that Paul is now addressing his Jewish audience and he's really jerking the rug out from under their feet He's leaving them with uh, no assurance of salvation simply because they have the law, simply because of their ethnicity. So this is what he has in mind. In chapters, chapter 1, beginning of verse 18, all through chapter 3 to verse 20, he is establishing for both Jews and Gentiles the need that you have to be justified before God. And so keeping that in mind is indeed what Paul uh, is, is doing Today, in our passage, none have the assurance outside of Christ, and that's going to be what he is driving at. Whether Jew or Gentile, none have assurance apart from Christ. So again, this passage can present some difficulties, maybe some false interpretations, uh, if we're not careful, Uh, So again, remember the context. Paul has indicted the Gentile world. Now he is indicting those who are the Jews. And so some of the things that Paul will say here uh, that we need to take note of is that God is going to judge each individual. He's not just judging one group of people. Well, since you're part of this group of people or whatever, you all have this particular judgment upon you, you Jews, and your covenant status. You have a different judgment. Uh, No, he judges each individual. Every person, every person will have a just judgment by God. And his judgment is right, is also what we learn here. And his judgment is not partial. So keeping those things in mind, we will head into this passage. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words. Let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. Who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation, There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Father, thank you that your word is true. Your word is truth. Your word exposes our hearts and that it presents our need for Christ. And I pray, Father, that as we work our way through this passage, that our hearts would indeed be grateful and rendering to you thanks, because none of us can do what these passages tell us. It's not possible for any of us. But we thank you that we did have one who did which was Christ Jesus, our Lord. Thank you for his life and for his death, for his resurrection. Thank you for his finished work, that through him we may have assurance of salvation. Father, be glorified in your people this day, and may your word go forth in in our hearts by the Spirit of God, applying it to us that we may carry it out. We love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> now, at first glance, again, this passage, if we're not careful, could present some problems. Because it almost seems as if Paul is saying that by your good works you're going to be justified. And if you don't, then you're going to be condemned. But again, that's not what, he's, what he is after here. That's not his point. Because the apostle is going to say later that by the works of the law, no one's going to be saved. And he's going to make very clear that there are none righteous, not even one. But again, speaking then to his Jewish audience, this is specifically then to to render them uh, without hope simply because they are the covenant people of God. He is then going to, again, just pull the rug out from under their feet so that in a little while he can make certain to then give them the good news and that they would see their need for the good news, which is Christ Jesus our Lord. There were a number of things that we had looked at in that first portion there that they themselves were practicing the very same things that they were condemning others for. They knew the law. They knew the Gentiles didn't have the written law. And so they were very quick to begin to point out what the Gentiles were doing and yet doing the very same things themselves. Again, not to the same degree, perhaps, but nonetheless doing the same things. That's what Paul is saying. They believed themselves that they would escape the judgment of God simply because of their their covenant status. They ignored the kindness and the tolerance of God that should have led them to repentance. And all they were doing then, because of their stubborn and unrepentant heart, was storing up wrath for themselves in the day of wrath. This is what Paul is establishing. So, continuing on from that very thought, beginning in verse 6, through eleven, he is. It's it's the same thing. Now, very interestingly, verses six through eleven also form a chiastic structure. So, if we're if going through Ecclesiastes, if we remember with uh, with Solomon himself, he'd done the very same thing. So, there are three statements that he's going to make in reference to uh, God Himself, of the people who do good and the people who do not, and he's going to repeat the very same thing in. Except he's going, to, he's going to say it backwards now. So it's almost as if it's, it's trailing up like a, like, a, like a triangle. It works up the triangle and it works right back down. And it's called the chiastic structure. And again, it's to emphasize a point. Now, the people that are presented here in this passage are really hypothetical groups. It's like he's giving a spectrum here. For those who do good, eternal life. For those who do not, condemnation you'll find yourself somewhere in the spectrum. And we'll see that because of the other things that he says here. But some of the first things that he, that he says to his audience in reference to their stubbornness and their unrepentant heart is that God is going to judge the individuals. Every individual according to their deeds, according to their works, according to their labors, that's the idea. He's going to recompense all according to their earned wages. That's the point. Now, we know that Paul emphasizes justification by faith. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. We maintain that. We know that. So what then is all this about? Well, it's not anything new. In fact, if you depending on what translation that you hold in your hands, you'll notice that verse 6 is is in a different font than the rest because it's a direct quotation from the Old Testament. If you look in in Psalm 62, verse 12, or Proverbs chapter 24, verse 12, this is where this is taken from. God will render to each according to their deeds. This is giving us the principle by which God judges all mankind. The principle by which he does is according to their deeds, according to their lives, according to their works. Everything that they do in their life is going to be judged by God, and He will render judgment accordingly, based on this principle. This is how He'll judge the wicked. It is by their deeds. By their earned wages. How a person behaves, how a person thinks, how a person talks. Uh, All will earn their due from the Lord who sees all. And it's to each individual. Across the board, this is how God judges. He doesn't judge by who you're affiliated with. He doesn't judge by your family. He doesn't judge by your church affiliations, uh, heritage, uh, your charitable acts. He doesn't judge by any of those things as far as gaining favor with him. He judges you individually. Everything that you've said, done in your life. So, Isaiah chapter 3, verses 10 and 11 speak of this. Jeremiah 17, verse 10, and especially Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 11. Revelation 20, verse begins... Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds." Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not written, found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire by their deeds. This is the judgment. This is giving us the principle by which God will condemn mankind. And it it's by their deeds. Everything that has ever been done, God takes note of. And if you notice the the language there in Revelation 20, the books were open. Well, what are the books? It's not the book of life. That was talked about just a sentence or two later. But each person according to their deeds. It is comprehensive, the judgment of God. He takes note of all things. All are accountable to him. And that is true for every single individual in the world. That's why every single individual will be judged by him. They are all accountable. He's the one who created them. He's the one who gave them life. It is their uh, responsibility, as we read in Romans chapter 1, that they should seek after God, that they should know God, that they should acknowledge him and obey him. But what do they do? They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They profess themselves to be wise. They become fools. Some say there is no God. Others will worship creation. And God will judge all according to their deeds. So this is, this is the first thing that, that his Jewish audience needs to recognize. That it's not just a matter of we're the covenant people. We're, we're, his, we're, we're his chosen people. And everybody that is outside is going to be judged By the Lord himself, but we ourselves will receive mercy. And we had read in a Jewish writing there in the Wisdom of Solomon there last week, that that's exactly what they think. The Gentiles get judgment, the Jews, they get mercy. Because of their covenant status. And they're grouping themselves together. We're Israel, we're God's chosen people. And what does Paul say? He renders to each one according to their deeds, so this means you, reader. You individual who are reading this, it means you. And just to take away any other assurance that they may have as, as being in covenant with God, then he continues on of the rightness of God's judgment upon them. And here's what he says. To those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. And he says, he repeats in verse 10. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now what is he saying? Again, he is not presenting to us justification by works. He's presenting two types of people. In one sense, maybe two types of hypothetical people. Those who perfectly obey the law and those who do not. And the folks that he is writing to are going to find themselves somewhere on this spectrum. Because we know no one is justified by the law. No one is justified by works. And even Paul says in verse 13, For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. And so if you're going to do it, you do it all. That's the idea. So he is saying to the Jew, you think you're justified by God? Well, here's the ones who are justified by God. The ones who are justified are those who, by perseverance in doing good, seek for glory, honor, and immortality, and they receive eternal life. So, if you're able to do that, good for you. If you're able to keep the law at every single point, good for you. Those are the ones whom God will justify. And again, you see that chiastic structure in verse 6. It starts out with the Lord, who will render to each person according to their deeds. And the parallel to that is verse 11, for there is no partiality with God. Verse 7 begins to speak of those who keep the law, as does verse 10. And then you'll find in the middle, verses 8 and 9, those who are selfishly ambitious, who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth. They receive tribulation, distress, distress. And he even points in there to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So he includes them in this indictment. He renders to everyone according to their deeds. If you're able to keep the law, then you have nothing to worry about. You receive eternal life, peace, and and, and honor and glory to everyone who can do it, who, who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek And he establishes too in this whole scenario of the even though the Jews have the law and the Gentiles don't have the law that there's no difference between them. There's more accountability for the Jews because they have the written law of God but the Gentiles and the Jews are all in the same boat. That's the point. If you're able to keep the law you'll receive peace, honor to the Jew first and to the Greek. If you don't You'll receive tribulation and distress to the Jew first and also to the Greek or the Gentile, depending on your translation there. Again, he's not presenting justification by works, but he is indeed bringing this indictment upon the Jews because of their belief that they will not receive the judgment of God because of their covenant status. And this actually gives... A greater understanding to even the entirety of the Old Testament itself of God's chosen people. Just because they were Jews did not mean that they went to heaven. Just because of their ethnicity. And he even speaks of in chapter three, or in chapter yeah, chapter three, then heading into chapter four of Abraham. Abraham was chosen by God, but what was it that brought him into favor? It was not by his works. It was because Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So those who believed and had the righteousness of Christ even in the Old Testament credited to them, those were the ones who were truly Israel. They were Israel according to the promise and that's going to come back up by the way. R.C. Sproul, he says of those even today who would have the same ideas as even the Jews of Paul's day, their covenant status. He said, the ground of God's judgment is not our ceremonies, our church affiliations, or our family relationships, but our deeds. And that is true for everyone. Each individual's performance will be evaluated by Almighty God. So the good and the evil. If you're able to keep the whole law, then you have nothing to worry about. But to those who are selfishly ambitious, the self-seeking, and do not obey the truth, but obey obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also to the Greek. What's he doing? He's taking his Jewish readers and, and he's reminding them, you cannot keep the entirety of the law. And so for every one of you who have sinned, this is your earned wage. Distress, judgment, condemnation. And again, he's removing the assurance of, of the Jewish people, of his Jewish readers. You know, there's nothing really different here than what Jesus himself had to deal with. Or John the Baptist, we talked about John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3, when he says to the religious leaders when they come to his baptism, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Don't claim Abraham for your father. I know God is able to raise up these rocks for Abraham. You can't claim heritage here. Why did he say that? Why did they get so offended when, they, when they're talking about our father is Abraham? He's, Jesus said, your father is the devil. Why were they so offended? Because they relied on their heritage. They relied on their ethnicity. And the Apostle Paul removes all that assurance. You have no assurance here. The only assurance that you may ever have is if you perfectly obey it, and they know that they haven't. No one can look at the law and say, I've done pretty well. Much less say, I've fully kept everything. Like the rich young ruler, I've kept all these from my youth. And you really don't understand who you are before a holy God. But that's the idea. He is not saying that people can be justified by their deeds or justified by their works. Again, who is he writing to? What is he doing in these passages? He's removing the assurance of the Jewish people. Another writer says... That the apostle is not here teaching the method of justification, but is laying down those general principles of justice according to which, irrespective of the gospel, all men are to be judged. He is expounding the law, not the gospel. That's what he's doing here. So the result of this is eternal life, if you're able to keep the whole law in its entirety, Not stumbling at any one point is what James says. If you stumble at one, you're guilty. But you may receive eternal life. But the point is, you can't. So, the result then, being for Paul's Jewish audience, is you're the self-seeking. You're the selfishly ambitious who do not obey the truth. But you obey unrighteousness and your earned wages, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil to the Jew first and also of the Greek. Here's your earned wage. Wrath. Indignation. Things that we can't even comprehend. What does that even mean? What is the wrath of God even going to be like? We have no idea. How can we? People like to say things like, well, you're going to burn in hell. As if Fire is going to be the judgment of God. Now if we look at things within the scripture, especially um, when it comes to the beauty and the majesty of heaven that John, for example, in the book of Revelation is trying to present to his readers, he's trying to use things that we would know, things that we would consider to be beautiful, of, whether you know, diamonds or you have the gates of pearl and the streets of transparent gold, all of this to try to describe the beauty of heaven in a way that could be understood. But the reality of heaven is far greater than what the symbols are that are used. This is why the apostle says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, neither has entered in the heart of the man what God has prepared. Right? So then, when it comes to the judgment of God, what is it that you could say or liken it to that that could express even, even the torment of God's righteous judgment upon you? Well, let's talk about Gehenna. Let's talk about the trash dump where the fires were constantly burning. God's judgment is like that. It's never-ending. It doesn't stop. And then if you think about fire, you think about fire, what's a, one of the worst things that we could ever think of is to continually be in a fire, never being consumed, and the pain never-ending. But the reality of hell is far greater than the symbols that are being used. That's the reality. So when we talk about wrath and indignation, we're not talking about burning in in an eternal flame. We're talking about the righteous condemnation and wrath of Almighty God upon sinners that none can comprehend except Christ Himself who took it. That's the reality of hell. It is unimaginable. It is not fire. It is not the absence of God. But it? R.C. Sproul said, hell is hell because God is there. Because the wrath of God is poured out upon the unbeliever, so he has to be there. He's the one rendering the wrath. To say that, that, well, hell is the absence of God, that, that God just keeps to himself and you get to be in eternal darkness or or whatever, that's not wrath. That's not what the Scripture teaches us. It's God who pours out His wrath, and so they are enduring the righteous judgment of a holy God. And that's what makes hell, hell. That's the bad news. That's the bad news that Paul is giving to his readers. This is your earned wage. This is what you have to look forward to, and just being a Jew will not not save you from this. That's why he keeps reiterating, to the Jew first, whether eternal life or righteous condemnation, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. None are able to keep the law of God, and that's the point. All the Jews, of his readers there, will find themselves being described in verses 8 and 9. The righteous judgment of God. His judgment is right because he were rendered to Jew and gentile alike according to their deeds. And he is impartial in his judgment. He says in verse 11, for there is no partiality with God. There is no favoritism with God. You know, you wonder sometimes, and for people that I've known in my own life, when things come up in order to to maybe do something nice or to do something good, especially for a church. Yeah, let's do that. As if doing something nice for the church is going to help that person on the day of judgment when God looks at them and says, well, you did do this for my... My people, so either one or two things. Either they expect that God will allow them to come into heaven because of their good deeds. Or perhaps their judgment will not be as severe. I don't know what's in their mind. But you see that. When it comes to, when it comes to a church, when it comes to you know, helping out a ministry or something like that, let's, let's give them a break. Let's, let's do something good you know, for them since they're a church. But that doesn't help you. That doesn't help you on the day that you stand before the Lord. It does nothing. Why? Because God is an impartial judge. And he shows no favoritism. There is no favoritism with Jew and Gentile alike. That is a principle that we also need to allow to, to penetrate into our minds because of the rest of what Paul's going to say on into Romans. There is no partiality with God. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, no male nor female, no bond, no free. We need to know that and you'll you'll know you'll understand why in the coming weeks, but God does not show partiality. And so his judgment is going to be right according to every person. Here's what you did, and here's your just punishment. I think it was Al Mohler, who, I can't remember if he was quoting John Gerstner or James Montgomery Boyce, one of them had said something to the effect that that on the day of judgment, uh, God's condemnation of the damned will be so right that even the damned will agree with their judgment. That's how right it will be. That's how just it will be. There are degrees of punishment. Not everyone gets the same punishment just because they're lumped into the same group. Every individual receives their just judgment. So there are degree, degrees of punishment in hell? Yes. We expect God to be just, right? We expect God to be righteous, which He is. And so He doesn't just take, well, you're a murderer, you're, you're, you're a thief, but you all have to be in the same group, so you all get the same punishment. Well, No. We don't, we don't look at it that way. Just because one sin may be more heinous than another, you know, and they happen to be in the same group, that God renders the same judgment to all. That's not just. But you who committed this murder, you who did this, you who did this, it's your judgment, your deeds, that will equal out to your judgment. So yes, there are degrees of punishment in hell. Jesus even teaches us that. In the Gospel of Matthew, for example, when he denounces, denounces Capernaum, uh, because he says, to, you know, he says to them, if the deeds that have been done in you were done in Sodom, they would have repented. But it's going to be more tolerable on the day of judgment for them than you. There is no partiality. God renders to each individual their just punishment. And that is what the Apostle Paul is emphasizing to the readers. And that is something for us to take note of. It is is needful to understand that all people will stand before God and and God will render to them what is deserved. And what is deserved, what is fair, across the board, is wrath. That's fair. But here's where mercy and grace come in. And mercy and grace have nothing to do with fairness. This is why the good news is the good news. Because while you earned this wage, Christ paid it for you. That's why when we we consider the assurance of our salvation and we can... All of that, of our salvation that has been freely given to us by a sovereign God, that's what, that's what makes it so wonderful. That's what penetrates into the heart for us to see how wonderful that God is because we know our earned wage, at least we have some comprehension of who we are and that we deserve the wrath. But this is where when God comes in and He says, I'm going to grant you something that you don't deserve, I'm going to extend something to you that I don't have to extend. Grace. But he does so out of his great love for those that he chose in the Son. Now, even though the Apostle Paul is bringing this indictment upon his Jewish readers, he renders to each one according to their deeds. You're not ones who can keep the whole law. Not possible. You will find yourselves under those who receive wrath an indignation on equal standing as with the Gentiles, and probably a greater judgment for the Jews because they did have the written law. And he goes into that in the next section. But there are some things to consider here, too, even about those that are in Christ. Even for those that are in Christ, when the judgment comes, what is the principle by which God judges? By our deeds. The judgment of the believer. If it's okay to say judgment, it sounds bad. But the judgment of the believer is also based upon your deeds. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning verse 8, He says, Now he who plants and he who waters are one, But each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as through so as through fire. So there is a judgment Of rewards for the believer. And what is that judgment based upon? Your deeds. So it is still a judgment that is the same principle. That Paul is emphasizing here even for the unbelieving. It's the same principle. You are judged by your deeds. You are judged by how you live. And interestingly as well. When the apostle is speaking there. Basically giving a spectrum of two people, those that perfectly keep the law, those that don't. The only one who perfectly kept the law, we know, was Christ Jesus our Lord. But when we begin to talk about what it is that Christ accomplished on behalf of His people, we talk about His, His active obedience, meaning He lived out His life perfectly, he was, he was declared righteous, and through faith His righteousness of keeping the law is now credited to you. So that the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, So the righteousness of Christ credited to the believer, the Holy Spirit regenerating the believer and writing his law on our hearts. One, the law of God is fulfilled in us because of Christ. And two, the Holy Spirit has written the law of God on our hearts that we want to do the things in the law. So we are not just those who hear the law as the Jews did. We have the law, so we must be good. But we must be the doers of the law, right? Well, those who are the doers of the law are those who are regenerated by the Spirit of God, having the law of God written in the heart, whose, whose uh, life is now characterized by the life that has now been given in Christ. So even the principles that are set there within 6 to 11, even though it is in reference to the apostle bringing condemnation upon the Jews, are things that are true for the believer though. The law of God is fulfilled by Christ and credited to you. As if as if you had done it. And now the Spirit of God has written his law in our hearts. That's part of the that's part of the work of the Spirit of God in regeneration. And that's part of what the, the Lord had said to the Jewish people when he, had, when he had announced the new covenant I will write my law on your hearts. That's what he also says in Ezekiel chapter 36, which we love to quote because it's the parallel to John 3 as we've been talking about. I will put my spirit within you. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and cause you to walk in my statutes. And so you shall observe them. So in one sense there is the truth that those who are obeying the Lord, who delight in the Lord, who are seeking after the Lord will receive eternal life. Their life is characterizing the truth of their profession of faith. The sanctification that is being done in them, being done by the Holy Spirit of God, has now changed them to delight in the law of God and then to carry out the things that we find within the Word of God. So those things are true, even for the believer. And on the day that you stand before the Lord, it is your deeds and the life that you have now lived. Your deeds will be judged. Now, Here's, here's something to consider, though. What I had always heard for so, so long was that when the judgment of God comes, that your whole life, even for the, the believer, this is in reference to the believer, your whole life will just kind of, I don't know, be on some kind of a, it was always described as some kind of a reel, some kind of a movie screen. Everything that you've ever done. And there's a problem with having that kind of view even though you're justified in the sight of God. Because what will be said is your life is, is, is going to be played out and the Lord is going to judge you according to your deeds and all of this. But the problem is, is if we, we remember what the scripture says, Christ has paid the debt for our sin. There, In that sense, there is no judgment for the believer because Christ... Has covered our sins by his atonement. Our sins are cast as far as the east is from the west. All of that kind of language is for those that are in Christ. So there is no judgment in that kind of a sense because Christ has paid it. And when he paid it, it's done, it's paid for in full. There is no more. And so when you stand before the Lord, it's about what you did as far as your deeds in your life in 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 ministry for the lord if you want to say it that way in your obedience to the lord your reward that you receive in that way you'll suffer loss if you are selfishly ambitious even as a believer you want to do things just to be seen you'll suffer loss if your desire is to glorify the lord how small or how little it doesn't matter you don't have to do big magnificent things it's being obedient to the Lord and keeping him as your first priority in life. Those things are produced in us by the Holy Spirit of God. Remember, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So as the Spirit changes us on the inside, we manifest that on the outside. We walk in obedience in delight. So on the day that you stand before the Lord, when it comes time for the rewards, that's what you're being judged for. As far as your sin, dear friends, Christ already took care of that. That's done. We need to remember that. But there, is, there are some things to take from that, though. In this passage, those who seek after good, as Jesus would say, seek first the kingdom. Don't be just a hearer of the word, but be a doer of the word. Don't say you have faith without works, but show your faith by your works. All these things are brought about by the Spirit of God. We recognize that. But as the Spirit brings them out in us, we are still walking in obedience to the Lord. So, dear friends, when it comes to the time of judgment, when it comes to the time of, of God's righteous judgment, even for those that we love... It cannot be that they will get any kind of a pass or God show them any kind of partiality simply because of who they were affiliated with. We cannot pray that, that the Lord will be merciful to them if they are not seeking after Him, if they are not converted. And so the job then must be, the task must be for the people of God, is to tell them, your church affiliation is doing nothing for you, dear friend. Your family heritage is doing nothing for you. You must be born again. Believe upon Christ and be saved. That's, that's our task. And only then, only then, may they escape the judgment of God. Otherwise it will be God rendering right judgment. So then, it all goes back to this. It goes back to the very point that Paul made at the very beginning. The gospel is the power of God and the salvation. He's not ashamed of it, and neither should you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you once again for this portion of your word. Father, thank you that in Christ we may have the forgiveness of sins. In Christ Jesus, we may be brought into your favor to delight in your word. To recognize that, Father, we did not earn our place before you, but it was earned for us in Christ. I pray that 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 would penetrate into our hearts even more, that we would be so, so grateful. And that our lives would be characterized by that gratefulness and by that appreciation. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to work in us, continue to change us and to, to make us into what you desire and to give us the desires, Father, of your heart, that they would become ours. Let us not be ashamed of the gospel. Let us recognize, Father, that that's the instrument that you use to bring your people to faith. Help us to be bold and courageous uh, that we would give him, give our loved ones And friends, that message, and that if it be your will, you'd work in their hearts to bring them to faith. Let us be people of truth, your truth. Father, thank you again for all that you are, all that you've done for us in Christ Jesus. We give you all the praise and the honor. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, Amen.